Hello everyone, welcome to eCypress Global Economy Podcast, where we are talking today about the long-run effects of technology on economic growth. We do this together with Bjorn Brei, who is a postdoc um, researcher at the UAB and has developed a very interesting paper on precisely the long-run effects of technology on economic uh, growth in from an historical perspective. And we are discussing today how that relates to today's context of digital uh, technology developments. Björn Breybe has done a PhD in economics at the University of Nottingham and is today's guest at our podcast. Hello Björn, welcome. Hello Eric, uh, great to be here, looking forward to talk to be talking to you about my research today. Um, we are also very excited to have you here on our podcast. Björn, I, I really like the paper, I thought it was very interesting. It's um, a very thorough paper. Could you tell us a little bit more what you have done in the paper and what your main result is? Thanks, Eric. Uh, so the paper is really about understanding how technology technology shapes long-run development. It, it focuses on the adoption of electricity in Switzerland that in the late 19th century, so really in this period of experimentation when Thomas Edison uh, kind of rolls out the light bulb in New York. It's really this between 1880 and 1900 where like electricity starts getting adopted in Switzerland as well. And it's kind of one of the countries at the forefront of adoption. And I, I look at how the local adoption of, of technology across different Swiss districts uh, drives uh, structural change and also uh, more broadly economic development in terms of income. And what I see is that in the short run, already between 1880 and 1900, there is this move out of agriculture into manufacturing. And this is, this is where there's electricity is being adopted. You see that, that even though it's a new technology, people don't really know how they're using it. Um, it's kind of the experimentation phase as well, like uh, with IT, when, when Bill Gates sits in his garage and develops Microsoft and so on. So people really try new ways of using it. And, and I can see that this, this already triggers manufacturing. Prominent people move into the sector and there's also an increase in GDP. And, and then what's what's interesting is that this short-run effect of, of electricity adoption doesn't disappear. It really persists over time and it continues to grow. So even like uh, up to like a hundred years later today, we really still see that these areas have higher manufacturing employment in Switzerland. So, so the places that had electricity once uh, more than a hundred years ago, uh, more intensively at the start, they're still more centered around manufacturing. Okay. Okay, could we could we stop here a moment? So you mentioned structural change and sort of the effect of, of electricity as a technology, that early adoption on, on structural change. Could you explain us a little bit what that structural change is? Um, so structural change is when, when people are moving out of agriculture, which is kind of a sector that is relatively low productivity, where you employ a lot of labor, especially in this historical setting where wages are relatively low. And they move either into manufacturing or services. And, and what's important here is that already in, in levels, like you earn better in manufacturing usually. But more importantly is also that manufacturing usually has much higher growth and innovation. So manufacturing really tries, tries further, further innovation. So actually these gaps are increasing between agriculture and manufacturing. And manufacturing is much more productive. So people kind of have occupations that, that pay them better, but also that create more goods 
that that produce more things. Um, okay. Why is it then that that is so important in the long run? What have you found there? So I really see that that these firms then. Um, so what the sectors that are really growing a lot in manufacturing they are the chemical industries, which Switzerland is still very known for, and these are kind of novel at the time. So they really they really use this new idea, like the new ways of of electricity, of like a commercial use for electricity at the time, and they start producing producing chemi- chemical intermediates and final final goods like carbon calcite, etc. But then they also start kind of going into new sectors, and that's kind of a key for this long-run growth story, this, this persistent effect, you really see that these, these firms settle in these areas and they start to kind of continue producing new goods and they start, stay innovative and they hire very uh, competitive and very knowledgeable workforce then. And they kind of create also their own skilled workforce. And this then persists up to today and these places are still richer. So you can think of some places like Basel in Switzerland, also places in Valais, which is, which is a very initially rural and kind of mountainous region, which are now kind of, really big uh, centers of manufacturing that are very rich in Switzerland attract a lot of commuters into these areas that are looking for jobs there. Um, very, very interesting. So it really has this kind of persistent long-run effect that you establish or that you find out over a time span of like about 100 years. So that that's really persistent um, divergence and persistent sort of performance of, of these kind of regions. My... Second question is, how can you be sure it is really that electricity that is driving that economic growth? Aren't there other factors that could also play a role? And how have you dealt with that? That's a really good question. So like one of the major concerns is, of course, that the places that are adopting electricity are the ones that are doing better anyway. Like, uh, why would you adopt a new technology? Because you want to use it to grow further. And here, Switzerland is a, is a very great setting to study it. Because uh, Switzerland was very poor in natural resources, so they didn't have any coal reserves or anything. The only source of power that they could use for generating electricity was water power. And at the time, we still had kind of mainly uh, electricity transmission by direct current. So the maximum distance of transmitting electricity by 1900 was about 20 kilometers. So it was very short range, and most of these, these transmission lines were not even longer than one kilometer. And what I can use then is uh, the fact that there's a lot of variation in the kind of minor geographical features um, that are relevant for the, the generation of electricity across Switzerland. And, and that was also realized by engineers at the time. So they basically conducted a nationwide kind of survey of where the best locations for water power plants are to generate electricity. So they basically studied all these locations, these rivers, other sites, and they kind of saw these, these, sometimes it was very small features like a bend in a, in a small mountainous river that just increased massively how much energy you could generate at this location. And they documented all these locations. They made a map for the whole of Switzerland, super detailed, providing also the, the kind of pipes where the waters would flow through, uh, where the turbine heights would be built. And they kind of like optimized, like, how do we get most electricity out of Switzerland? So I can use their kind of geographic data and match it to, to local areas to get an idea of where is the best place to generate electricity at the time? And this is basically only driven by geographic features. I can see that it's unrelated, this, this kind of having the luck of, of getting a lot of potential to generate electricity with uh, economic development beforehand. So places have the same level of agriculture, manufacturing, services have the same population density. So it's really kind of a, a random allocation of the, of, the adopt, like of this fundamental, which then drives the adoption of electricity. 
And what's also important is that this way of exploiting electricity is very much changing over time. So beforehand, these features were not relevant. So when you had mechanical water mills to, to, to grind flour, etc., they they couldn't exploit this huge amount of, of an energy that electricity was able to exploit. But also after 1900, more and more there's this transition to, to alternating current technology and people started to build these big embankment dams. So beforehand, it was usually a pressure pipe and a turbine house, but after it became uh, these artificial lakes that were generating even more electricity. So it's really mm -hmm. also a time variation in how important these features were for electricity generation. So there were ideal factors to research a topic here in Switzerland because it was really the geographical factors that makes your that makes your assertion of 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 technology on growth being what we call like exogenous, right? So it's really an independent sort of factor that played that role on long term long term growth in Switzerland as a result of technology adoption. Exactly. So Switzerland was a was a really great setting here, and also it was one of the main adopters of technology at the time. So it was kind of comparable. Uh, to the U.S. and in the way they were adopting technology, so it's it's really the perfect setting setting to study this question here. And then, so I was very lucky to to find also amazing data, and um, that comes also from Switzerland realizing that kind of water power was so crucial for their economic development that they really invested into into collecting this data on technology adoption very early on, which is especially in historical settings often very rare. That's great. What I also sort of have read in the paper that you have tried to disentangle the underlying mechanisms of how this effect came into place. Um, could you tell us something about that? So what were the mechanisms to come from that structural change to persistent divergence in GDP per capita among the regions that were adopting this early or early adoption of electricity? That's that's really interesting to understand what is kind of the, the key behind seeing this lasting effect. And I'm going to start quickly by by saying, like talking about two mechanisms that are actually not driving it, which might be quite the, the thing we would think about. So firstly, it's not technology itself. What's quite interesting with electricity is that you really have this transition from direct current to alternating current after 1900. So basically, everyone in Switzerland gets quite rapidly connected to electricity afterwards. So really, you get these long transmission lines. And then even in the big cities, uh, you don't need a water power plant, but you can just use electricity that is produced uh, several hundred kilometers away. And I can see that it's also not even the, the intensity of electricity use that's greater at these sites. So really, the, the electricity use per person kind of equals out very quickly. So it's not the technology itself that, that is key for the long-lasting effect. And also another thing is it's not migration or something. So you don't have people moving to these places and then you just have a bigger workforce. So you have the agglomeration of firms, uh, et cetera, that, that have like this lasting impact. But rather what's, what seems to be driving it, and, and I can dig into a lot of detail here, is it's human capital accumulation. So I can really see that, that using kind of military test scores, uh, historic ones, I see that there's an immediate increase at kind of the secondary level of, of knowledge and especially in math and kind of general knowledge that's very related to these new jobs, especially in chemical industries that are emerging at this time. So you really see that that these places, they, they get the new industries, but they also get at the same time very intertwined uh, new human capital. So they really foster this kind of buildup of knowledge that is really relevant also for, for kind of future innovation in, in chemicals. Like it's really, a, it's no longer the kind of tinkering, uh, trying out stuff, but it's really like, organized scientific research that is key for these these firms to kind of further grow. 
So you kind of have this growth in human capital accumulation. And you see also that, that more schools and especially dual education schools that are kind of linking uh, the government and the, and the firms and kind of having like you, you spend half the year working in the company and half the year in school. These are really growing in these places. And there's more of these schools that I can document as well as there's a change in the demand for education. So Swiss has a, Switzerland has a lot of referendums on different policies. And I see also that these places that get electricity early, they suddenly change their behavior and they vote more in favor of referendums that, that support education policy. So it's really in a, cha a change in kind of the demand and supply of education. And, and this then intertwines uh, with these new industries to really continue this big push in terms of manufacturing employment. Because otherwise you might also think that why don't these firms just move away? It's really because they now have a very educated workforce that is that is driving the innovation. So they, they really locked into this position, into, into this place, into this location, and they stay in these places. Very interesting as a mechanism, because we are talking a lot about human capital today. And that's where I actually would like to push that discussion a little bit in, in, in our second half of the podcast. So there is a lot going on in today's economy. I mean, the economy or the global economy or our economy is becoming more and more digital. And that is thanks to all the digital technologies. So we are also currently living in a time of rapid technological development. And it is important to know because economies do really give a large role or say that the technology is a big factor in creating more economic growth, as you have done um, in your paper looking at the past. So if you were to draw a parallel of the result of your paper from a historical setting to today with digital technologies, what are your observations? So I think a potential example that comes to mind uh, would be like the recent development of uh, the information technology sector in Estonia. And I think there's a lot of similarities to late 19th century Switzerland. And, and, the, and the similarities are, for example, that a lot of the growth in Switzerland is in, in poor rural areas that are also very mountainous, that are kind of left behind, where you then have the electricity allocation. And similar, Estonia, after, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, is a relative poor economy, kind of lagging behind technology, uh, technologically to the West. But then what they do, which is, is again, a, a very strong parallel, they really invest, invest into kind of the, the widespread extension of broadband uh, internet across the country so you really early get access to the internet even though the, the place is, is in general poor um, and they also invest into education so they really provide even school children with the education to learn coding so they really push also the human capital which is connected to this new technology and that's the same as, as seems to be happening in switzerland historically you really have this interaction of of knowledge and uh, the kind of technology infrastructure that is required to, to kind of like use these new technologies. And then now Estonia is really having the same kind of growth period, like they're really profiting from these investments into, into the infrastructure, but also the education. And they, they have, I think, now the highest uh, per capita rate of IT startups at the moment. So they're really gaining from, from this interaction of technology and even being lagging behind before really jumping to the forefront and having a very skilled workforce in the sector. And that really helps them to kind of have persistent gains. So I think that might be a very good example. And there might be also other ones like in Kenya, the kind of rollout of, of mobile internet or mobile phones, which is a similar story where you kind of have this, this big push uh, in certain countries to the technological forefront. Very nice. And, and to take it one step further, 
so if we take electricity um, as a commodity, as an item that was pushing so much uh, innovation back in the days in history. Now, as you may know, along with all these digital technologies, there is the role of, of data that we are discussing a lot, like here at ESI, but also elsewhere, you know, in European Union, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the role of data for industry, for the economy, etc. Sometimes data is compared with oil. Um, some people disagree with that. But what I also hear sometimes is that data, the role of data in our economy, could be compared with electricity. I don't know whether that's the right sort of comparison, but are there any comparisons to be drawn? I mean, are there sort of comparisons to be drawn between that commodity electricity and our data or data in a data-driven economy? And are there any sort of policy implications for that? I mean, because the European Union is doing a lot of regulatory development, sort of pushing for new regulations that precisely target um, the digital economy and data. And so are there any sort of policy implications in your view related to that or perhaps any other kind of policy implications, policy items that we should sort of be aware of? I think that's a very interesting question. So one thing in in kind of our current world I'm, I'm kind of thinking of and I've talked with um, other researchers about is for example, that Google Books kind of developed this, this OCR, so this kind of character recognition software to kind of digitize books very quickly. And for them, for this, of course, they used a lot of, they, they needed a lot of data to train this algorithm and then it was growing. And then what's important is that, that this algorithm was then provided kind of publicly to other companies that then kind of use this base algorithm to kind of specialize in certain areas like a table recognition or something like that. And that has then commercial spillovers and kind of other gains for consumers. So it's kind of the initial role of data and then some, some the use of this data that then gets publicly available and can be extended. I think one interesting comparison that we can draw to this from Switzerland is that the initial rollout was very private. So you have a lot of entrepreneurs that set up electrical power plants to either supply like small towns with electricity and electrical light, or they were just supplying their own factories. So they set up these generators to supply their factories. And that then kind of created like this problem that, that not everyone gets access to electricity and this kind of slowed down a bit growth, it seems. So this is more like a qualitative kind of just from the historical narrative. And then what was happening is that more and more kind of cantons, so the, the kind of government areas that are relatively large in Switzerland or the national government stepped in to kind of set up power plants and set up these, these electricity lines also with alternating currents because they can transport them longer distances. So they kind of set up these natural monopolies to to give this technology to everyone. And that I think helped a lot as well uh, afterwards to kind of spread electricity. Also still like who had electricity first still matters. So, so this advantages were still relevant later on. So I think here it's very important to, to find a good balance between um, having companies invest into new, new ideas, but then also making it possible that, that others can gain from this knowledge and kind of build on their, their kind of fundamental steps. I think that's very important. And another part is also to understand how patenting laws work and, and kind of, uh, I think it's very important to, to be able to patent your innovation. But uh, when going back to the case of Switzerland, which is quite interesting, especially uh, for chemical firms, 
until 1907, Switzerland didn't have any patenting laws. So really, they could be set up in Switzerland using this cheap electricity that they could produce locally to kind of copy certain products. So you have this kind of copying of, of processes that were developed in Germany or France or the UK, and, and they produce chemicals at first, but then they start to innovate on these initial processes. And then they kind of get better and better, and they start to become innovators themselves. And as they become innovators, and there's kind of a local gain from patenting laws, you also see that in referendums, Switzerland shifts to getting patenting laws. So suddenly there's public support for, for having this intellectual property protection, which is very interesting. So there's on this one hand, these, there's this kind of two things that need to be weighed. So like you want to have some open access to technologies. So it's quite important that others can catch up with you and can use certain technologies. Uh, and that's just mm -hmm. really important about data as well. So really protecting data can be quite damaging to everyone else apart from, from the monopolist that holds this data. But then also you want to give people kind of incentives to further invest into, into new research and they need to have some gains from, from having technologies. So I think it's maybe also the question, how long should data be private? Should it be maybe private for only 10 years uh, for these companies? And then they need to make their, their algorithm public, publicly available so others can build on, on what they have done so far. Interesting. Very nice. I would like to take a step back now and go back to the role of human capital and more broadly in terms of labor. A big discussion among economists nowadays is, of course, the sort of the linkages between technology and labor or human capital. So you have the people that are more pessimistic about the, this interaction saying that technology is substituting a lot for, for labor. But you also have the more optimist um, approach or explanation saying, no, I mean, technology reinforces that labor and doesn't substitute it. It, it complements it, basically. So very, very sort of very simplistic uh, way of asking you, in what kind of school or camp do you belong? I mean, you have done a lot of research on technology and you also do look at the role of, of labor or human capital. So are you a technology optimist or are you a technology pessimist? So I think that's, that's very interesting to think about because in my paper, I'm very uh, optimistic about technology and especially in the more historical contract, uh, context, this is, this is somewhat antagonistic. So this is not how people see technology, especially this dimension. People see it really as de-skilling, and I think it is de-skilling. So depending on the technology, you might have really large gains from it, while others might be quite harmful. So for example, the steam engine here in West, it, like the, the person just becomes part of the machine. They really lose their skills. They lose their independent thinking. And then over the long run, especially when these industries in, in textile production, et cetera, uh, disappear, you really get these areas left behind in the northwest of England, the rural areas in Germany, uh, northeastern France. You really have this kind of pockets of poverty that were once very industrious, very prosperous. But because there's no transferable skills, they kind of start being left behind. And I think that's that's a key problem. And we have similar, we see similar things now in the labor market. Um, for example, in the US, the kind of adoption of the personal computer really drove out kind of routine skills so like data entry data management skills and people have been polarizing to the to the extremes of the skill distribution so they became either more low skilled or more high skilled um, so here's kind of the question how can we avoid that people go down the skill ladders? how can we push them to move upwards if, if there's these te new technologies coming in and similarly you have the kind of issue of 
the, the kind of service sector gig economy where you have like Uber, Deliveroo, etc., that provide kind of quite innovative new kind of linkings of consumers and, and uh, demand and supply. But then the actual jobs that it creates might not be very skilled and might not be um, the jobs that people want, at least for, for their whole lives. So they, they, you're basically a, a driver or you just deliver a food parcel on your bike. If they have long run gains, these jobs, the, uh, these companies is kind of an open question. And it's, it, this seems to be more negative to me than, than other technologies. And I think, especially with IT and data, there, there's a lot of variety in, in the sectors that it can be used. So there will be positives and negatives. And I think for policymakers, it's very important to kind of understand which ones are the positives, which ones are the ones we should push, and which ones are the negatives where we want to regulate. And can we learn something from your paper then? Um, because you deal with human capital, is there a lesson to be drawn here for now? I think one of the, the lessons to be drawn here is that it's it's maybe too hard. Maybe I shouldn't generalize too much here. So I really see that electricity is very positive um, and it's a very positive technology. I think the lesson to be learned here is if you see that that the technology drives people independently without even the reinforcing of, of policymakers to gain more education, more human capital, more knowledge, they start to innovate because they get access to a new technology. This is possibly a good sign that this is a is a nice new technology that will provide long-run gains. If people start to de-skilling, if they move from kind of jobs that require more skills towards jobs that require less skills, where they, they just do very manual tasks, like, for example, food delivery and so on, then it's more likely that this is probably in the long run not so positive and has no positive lasting effects on, on people's incomes. So I think that might be what you can learn from my papers. Maybe you can find indicators of understanding what makes technology positive and what makes it potentially negative in, in, in the long run. Okay, so last, last question that I have, and that, that's still related to the human capital. What you also try to access uh, or assess in the paper is the role of infrastructure. So the two are often discussed together, I mean, in your paper, but also today, right? So there's an emphasis on human capital, but there's also an emphasis on infrastructure or in current days, like digital infrastructure, so the connectivity part. Often that's, that's being emphasized a lot. You know, we have to have connectivity because otherwise, how can you sort of connect and how can you develop these kind of digital uh, technologies or how can you work with data? However, I mean, in your paper, I think a lot of emphasis is put on precisely the role of human capital. And so what, what sort of, what's, what's most important in your view? What comes first? I mean, if you were a policymaker, what would you sort of emphasize on more? I think the key here is to really not choose one or the other. And I think, uh, for example, Germany is a good example here. So you might have quite good broadband rollout, but still companies are lagging at adopting it. So they don't take up the new kind of technologies because they're lagging, um, they're lagging the skills to use it really. So you don't have the IT specialists to really adopt IT services. So you cannot adopt into this economy. So really it's about if you provide the infrastructure, you need to provide the skills to use it as well. And of course, if you provide the skills to use it, but you don't have the infrastructure, there's no point in having it. And, and that again goes back to the, the case of Switzerland, but also Estonia, where it's really the push of interconnecting them. So it's, in Estonia, really roll out broadband internet, but you also teach kids to code. So you have the skills and the infrastructure. And I think 
focusing on one and not the other, it, it makes little sense. So it's really the interaction that drives the gains here. So that would be my answer, which kind of doesn't answer your question. But I think for policymakers, it's important to not decide on one or the other to really put the emphasis on, on integrating the two factors. Great. You know, I think sometimes the whole story about human capital is forgotten these days. I mean, because there is a lot of talk on, on, on precisely the connectivity part. And also, if you look into developing countries, I mean, they, there is this emphasis on, you know, electricity networks and, 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 and that helps to, to create digital connectivity. Yet, I mean, human capital is also important because otherwise, as your paper shows, that that's the main mechanism. If that's not there, then... Yeah, these long-run GDP effects would be observable in the first place, I would say. Thank you very much for today, Björn. This was a great chat. Thank you for being our guest in today's uh, podcast of eCyper, which is called Global Economy Podcast. I enjoyed our discussion a lot. I hope all the listeners did so too. And have a good day. Thank you very much, Eric.